I want to open to, up to you Psalm 42. I'm going to read the whole psalm right now. And I want to encourage you, if you have a Bible, uh, get it out, put it on your lap. Let's work through the scriptures together. Um, the text of the psalm is also in the description below the YouTube video or on the website. If you just scroll down below the video, you'll see the text of the psalm there. And so that will help you as we're considering what the psalmist has to say. Psalm 42, to the choir master, a maskil of the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of, my, of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Now, I would say that this is um, truly a song which a psalm which jumps out as being appropriate for the series as we're thinking about these songs in the dark. The psalms are given to us as prayers or as songs which articulate the full breadth of experience in the life of the person of faith, the person who's seeking to walk with God. And some of them express extreme joy, celebration, you know, moments of deliverance. And some of them call out to God in times where, of confusion or of darkness or of uncertainty. And there's no, there's no doubt of, at all that this particular psalm speaks to us in this moment and seems really pertinent and appropriate. And it's not so much because of the circumstances of the psalm. We actually don't know anything of what was happening in the life of the psalmist but really because of his state of heart, because of his spiritual condition in view of what must have been a difficult period in his life. So as he writes the psalm, the words that he gives voice to in prayer seem massively appropriate to me as we are considering our present situation of crisis. And that's why I want to open it up to you. I want to just quickly show you some of the state of heart that he was experiencing, what was going on in his life so that we can very immediately see the relevance of this particular psalm. And first of all, he was facing grief. It says in the third verse, my tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the, all the day long, where is your God? My tears have been my food day and night. I don't know um, if it's been your experience, but certainly uh, I've, in moments when I face grief, I've experienced the unexpected and uncontrollable nature of tears. I'm not someone who's given to crying very much. Uh, my wife 
makes much of this. I didn't cry on our wedding day. I didn't cry at the birth of any of my children. I don't cry very often. But I've cried when I've faced moments of grief in life and the tears have have come at me very unexpectedly. Like I'll be in conversation with a stranger even or someone who I don't know very well. They ask me how I'm doing. And suddenly the tears come and they come in an uncontrollable, unstoppable way. And it's obvious when he says my tears have been my food day and night that the psalmist is facing real grief, a real sadness, just that real gut-wrenching pain of soul. He's got grief. Another thing he's facing is doubt. He says in that same verse, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? And also in verse 10, he says, as with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? And it seems to me that really we're in most spiritual danger in the extremes of the Christian life. Um, There is a certain kind of danger, which is particular to moments of real joy and happiness and contentment, which is that people very often forget their need for God. But at the other end of the Christian life, when you're facing grief, when you're facing sadness, when you're facing pain, there is another type of danger that you face, and it's particularly the danger of doubt. And this seems to be exacerbated for the psalmist, and it may be true in your experience as well, by the voices of people around you. So you say, where's God? Like, who... It just could be a voice in your head or it could be real people just saying to you, where is your God? You know, does prayer really work? How did you end up in this situation? How can God be good? Those kinds of questions. And, you know, I, I was remembering how this even is true of Jesus as he hangs on the cross. The authorities and the, the kind of the religious authorities who were so pleased to have dealt this blow against this man who they thought as a, saw as a threat. They mock him and they say, if you are the son of God, Come down from the cross. It's like, you know, if, if any of the things that you profess are true, then what are you doing in this position right now, hanging on the cross? And this can be your, your experience in moments of sadness, that that particular mocking voice can be a problem to you. You know, where is God right now? So he's experiencing grief and then also doubt. And doubt seems to me to be one of the most dangerous situations to remain in as a, a person of faith, for the simple reason that it destabilizes your entire world. You know, if you felt that the ground was solid, suddenly when doubts creep in, it's really the ground upon which you walk that begins to crumble, and it's very hard to maintain any semblance of peace or of stability when you're facing chronic, ongoing, dark doubt. So he faces grief and doubt. And the third thing that he faces is isolation. Now, it's not so obvious at first, but look at the fourth verse. He says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise and multitude keeping festival. We don't know what's happened, but we know that the psalmist is looking back to past experiences of worshiping with the people of God, which he's not enjoying right now. For whatever reason, he's in a position of real isolation. And I, 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 listen, we need to distinguish here between isolation and solitude. Solitude is a good thing. It's good in the rhythms of ordinary life to find solitude if you want to have a rich, deep spiritual walk. You have to find time alone. But isolation is different from solitude. Isolation is being cut off. It's being separated from. And it's clear to me that the psalmist is facing a real experience of dangerous isolation, of being cut off from God's people. We don't know why, we don't know what's going on. 
And this is dangerous for all of us. I think this is probably the most dangerous aspect of what we're facing right now. Some of you are extroverted and you felt the pain from day one. Some of you are introverted and you can, you can more easily tell yourself the story that you're doing fine. But the reality is that every one of us needs human touch. We need love. We need laughter. We need that engagement that only comes through social relationships. And this is even more true when it comes to your spiritual health. I've been pastoring uh, full-time now for 13 years and in church my entire life. And one thing, one rule that seems to me to be unbreakable is that the isolated Christian experiences a real degrading uh, quality to their faith. Their faith begins to crumble and they begin to experience um, the pain of that isolation very quickly if they're cut off from God's people, either through self, you know, self-inflicted means or for whatever reason. Grief, doubt, and isolation. And all of this begins to culminate in what you can describe as a state of spiritual depression. This is Lloyd, Martin Lloyd-Jones's term that he used for a series of sermons and which began in this particular psalm. But in the fifth verse, he says, Why you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? This is really encapsulates for us what this man is feeling, what he's going through. He's experiencing real spiritual depression. And as a result, his faith is very much at the edge. He's in danger, I think. And I would want to stress for you that if ever you find yourself in this period, and it may be true for you right now or it may not, but if ever you find yourself in a state like this, this is a very unique and important moment in your life. And it can really go one of two ways. It can either go into a darker state of distancing from God where disappointment sets in and where frustration and anger with God sets in. And that generally doesn't end well. Or it can lead to a place of experiencing the goodness of God in the valley, in the darkness, experiencing his goodness and his kindness, which will set you up with more strength and stability for life to come. And it really can go either way. Now, the reason why we're looking at this psalm is not merely to open up the fact that this guy's in a dark place. That doesn't do us much good, does it? But it's rather to show us what he does in the darkness, what he is doing in that position of having a cast down soul, of experiencing spiritual depression. And I want to show you that there are three practices that he gives himself to, three disciplines. I don't necessarily think that's the best language to use but it's difficult to know how to explain this these are three ways three footholds upon which he rests his spiritual um sort of state i suppose or or finds help in god and all of them are absolutely crucial to us and i want to explain to you what they are the first is this it's the discipline of prayer the discipline of prayer and that really comes through in the very first lines where he says as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. He is addressing, first of all, his words to God in this desperate expression of prayer. Now, the minute that I begin speaking up about prayer, I'm conscious that uh, many Christians are struggling here because you feel your sense of failure in your prayer life, perhaps more than any other aspect of your spiritual life. And many of us identify with that, and there are different reasons for it. Let me list to you a few. One of them is because you feel you lack discipline. You lack the self-control to be consistent in it. And I don't know anyone who hasn't at some point faced that as an issue. Another problem is that you have doubts that 
sometimes really what stops us from praying is the nagging questions in the back of my mind that may never really be vocalized or even that you're aware of, but it's really the questions of, does this make any difference? Is God listening? There's discipline problems, there's doubt problems. There's also confidence problems that lots of people simply don't know how to pray. And as a result, they feel like a failure even before they begin. So they just don't bother. And I, you know, I think that that is too common to even count that so many people struggle with prayer because of these kinds of problems and others that I haven't listed. Now, the psalmist shows us here how all of these problems can be overcome. And I think that the answer, if you ask the question, well, how? How can I have a prayer life which is substantial and authentic and leads to spiritual growth? What does the psalmist have to say to us on that question? And I think that the answer is that he shows us the primary purpose for which prayer exists, for which we are given the gift of prayer. And it's not, it's not given to us to have an empty duty to fulfill, to please God. It's not given to us that we can feel better about ourselves. You know, we are creatures who love to self-justify and, and feel great about ourselves. But prayer hasn't been given to us to just add to our list of the things we're doing great in life as a means of self self-justifying it's not given to us least of all to tell others that we do it that would be the worst possible reason to pray I, listen let me let me put it to you like this <clears throat> the primary and most fundamental purpose for prayer that this psalm shows us is that we might experience happiness in god that is the first thing about prayer that is the most important thing about prayer now let me ask with you why is that so important and I think the answer is that Christianity lacks power when some of its sort of secondary aspects are made primary. So if it's, if it's just about getting to heaven, Christianity lacks power. If it's just about settling your conscience, Christianity lacks, lacks power. If it's just about changing your life, Christianity lacks power. Because all of those things, the many good things that flow from the Christian life, are actually rooted in the fundamental thing, which is the experience of happiness and joy in a relationship that's rightly ordered with God himself. Coming to know God personally and finding your, your soul's satisfaction in him is the first thing out of which everything else flows. And this is, this is absolutely clear to me from scripture, from my meditation on this subject. The Westminster Confession of Faith, which was written in 1647, begins with the first question, what is the chief end of man? In other words, what is the reason for which God created humanity? What is our primary purpose in life? And the surprising answer comes to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Enjoy him, find happiness in him. John Piper famously um, rephrased it as to glorify God by enjoying him forever. It's our joy in him which is the most important way that as Christians we give glory to God. When we're happy about something, it reflects wonderfully on the thing that we enjoy. And when we're miserable, it doesn't reflect well on it. So the Christian is, has a calling, even a duty to find happiness in God. And that is the first and most important aspect of your devotion of what it means to be a Christian. Now, this view of prayer will revolutionize your prayer life because, you know, I, I mentioned some of the hindrances. We mentioned discipline. We lack discipline. When prayer is a source of delight, discipline is much less of a problem because you're no longer wrestling with 
the agony of, of trying to control yourself to get it done. You enjoy being in God's presence and you experience delight in knowing him. Discipline becomes much less of a problem. I think also that doubt becomes much less of a problem because it's not just the case that prayer is asking for things that may be answered in a day or a week or months or years or after a lifetime. It's also the case that you're experiencing the answer to your prayer on the spot in the very moment that you're praying because of the delight that you're experiencing. You bring to God your anxiety. You bring to him your, your, your depression even or you bring to him your, your desperation and there and then you feel that God is drawing near to you and giving you joy. You experience a measure of instant gratification in the act of prayer itself, providing that you pray in faith and you come to God through the Lord Jesus Christ as we're called to do. And you lack confidence, but confidence becomes much less of an issue when you understand that prayer is mainly about the enjoyment of God rather than trying to do it right. You know, you can picture two people praying. One of them is anxiously trying to get this right. Think about the right words to say, the right form of prayer, the right way to do this. And the other person is just enjoying God, pouring out their heart to God, experiencing his comfort and his presence near to them. It seems to me that prayer becomes much less of a technical exercise when joy and delight is at the heart of prayer. Does it rule out effort? Uh, it doesn't, I'm afraid. Um, you know, it's there even in the picture when he says, a deer, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. There is a measure of effort and a desperation in the act of prayer, which is followed with the reward of, of joy, of God drawing near to you. And I think, you know, to think of an analogy here, these, you know, the idea that effort and joy are mutually exclusive is, of course, not true. Um, the best pub lunch you'll ever eat will be the one after you've done a long walk. Let's say you've walked up Mount Skiddaw in the Lake District or along the Dorset coastline, and you, your walk culminates in a well-earned pub lunch. The joy is, is enhanced because of the, the quest, because of the search, because of the effort that you've exerted. I remember when I was much younger, I had a series of um, sort of small jobs just to pay um, my way through university and so on. And uh, one of them was as a building laborer. And I have never experienced better sleep in my life than as a building laborer. I was uh, as a particularly um, used to destroy things. So I was wielding a mallet most of the day, uh, not particularly gifted in construction, more just in destruction. But after a day of sheer physical exertion, what followed was the, the sweetest sleep that I remember in my whole life. And this is what I'm speaking about, that the psalmist brings to God his desperation, but his reward is joy, his reward is peace, his reward is, is his happiness, actually. The cast-down soul must find happiness through the discipline of prayer. Now, here's a second thing he shows us. He shows us, this, is, this one is a bit more surprising, but he shows us the discipline of talking to yourself. And this comes through in two places. Verse 5, why? Are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And then he repeats those exact same words in the last verse of the psalm. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And so on. Now, to understand this, ask the question, what is it that makes depression or a feeling of being caught in a state of being low, particularly spiritual lowness. What is it that makes that state dangerous? And the answer is it has to do with 
the thoughts that are playing through your head and the narratives that you are believing and that are controlling your mind. That's what makes the state dangerous. That what, that's what makes it difficult to get out of. One aspect of this is what um, psychologists call rumination. Rumination is the tendency to play and replay past experiences, mistakes, things that have happened to you, regrets, things that have a negative aspect to them, which then obviously through the constant rumination upon these thoughts and the cycle of them going through your mind, they lead to guilt and regret and feelings of anxiety and lowness and all that kind of stuff. And I think that that's a picture of what can happen in the mind when it's caught in, in dark thoughts. And this is even more true, by the way, when, you know, as we, we said at the start, that you're in a place of isolation as we all are right now. And really what it's like is like a rut in a road. Before we had tarmac, uh, many roads were dirt roads and dirt roads have a tendency to erode into two ruts, roughly the width of a wagon or a, or a tractor or a car. And if you've ever driven on a dirt road which has two ruts on it, the remarkable thing is that you don't need to steer. All you need to do is apply uh, acceleration, apply, apply the accelerating pedal, and the car will travel faithfully along that same path. And this is a very good picture of what happens in the mind when you're caught in dark cycles of thought. You don't need to steer. You're not really controlling your thought habits they're just returning again and again in these ruts in this rumination in this turning of dark thoughts and narratives and beliefs that really ends up being a vicious cycle you end up in a darker place now what causes us to fall into these dark thoughts and and patterns i think some of the answer is personality i never think i, I do not think we should ever uh, exclude or discount the importance of this aspect we are all wired very differently some of us are more given to an optimistic, joyful, sunny view of life. And some of us are more given to a darker outlook, a more melancholy outlook on our circumstances, a more pessimistic view. And so your own makeup can be a huge part of this. And it's good to be aware of that, not so that you can be constrained or doomed by it, but so that through self-awareness, you can find a way out. There's your own personality. There's also spiritual dynamic here. It seems to me that through my own personal experience in life, that there are times in life where, spiritually speaking, you feel the sun is shining and there are times when you feel like there are dark clouds brooding and you feel like you're in a spiritual battle, a battle for your very soul. And a lot of this has to do with thoughts. It has to do with, you know, one of the things that we learn from scripture is that if, if, if the demonic powers are afflicting us, it's primarily through our thoughts it's through suggestion, through lies, through deceit, through accusation and guilt. This is the spiritual war that we're in. It's primarily a battle for the mind, but it is very much real. So we have the, the personality aspect, the spiritual aspect. We also have the aspect of circumstances. And this is where we all share something in common right now that we're all going through together, a very dark circumstance. But for some of you, you may have other things layered on top of that. The loss of a loved one or, the, or anxiety about your work or whatever's happening in your life that can very much exacerbate the problem that you are facing. Now, the reason why I stress all this is because I want you to understand that there is a way out of this being caught in these dark thoughts. And it's not just through praying. 
I think prayer is the most fundamental thing, expressions of trust and of calling out to God. But it is not just that. And nor is it necessarily through speaking with others. I've found other people's voices to be of immeasurable help in my life at various moments when I've needed to talk to other people. And certainly that's important, but it's not everything. The thing which we learn from this psalm and elsewhere in scripture, but particularly clear here, is the action the psalmist takes in speaking to his own soul. Now, I first heard about this um, from Martin Lloyd-Jones in his series of sermons, which are called Spiritual Depression. The first chapter speaks about this, and it happens to be opening up this very same psalm, Psalm 42. And he put it very memorably, memorably like this. He said, the main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression, in a sense, is this, that we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourselves. He says, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why art thou cast down? Why are you cast down, O my soul, he says, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. Now, the idea that speaking to yourself could in some sense be an answer to getting out of this rut may strike you as odd. We've been told that speaking to yourself is a sign of madness. We've also, you know, been exposed to the embarrassing aspects of the self-help movement where you're encouraged to look in a mirror and tell yourself what a wonderful, gorgeous and competent, confident person you are. And of course, it's very empty because, you know, you're telling you that. This is not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is the fact that let's just acknowledge that we are deeply conflicted creatures. We're conflicted creatures and we have opposing thoughts even within our own minds and hearts. And this comes through in the Bible in various places. There's a moment in Mark's gospel where Jesus encounters a man whose son is afflicted by a demon. And the father brings his son to Jesus and says, please heal him if you can. And Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible for him who believes. And the man replies with this memorable line where he says, I believe, help my unbelief. In other words, he says, there's a conflict of spirit inside me. There's a part of me that fully believes that you can help me, Jesus. And there's a part of me which is less than certain. And I need help with that aspect of unbelief. This also comes through with the question of our desires and motives and what we want in life. In Romans chapter 7, Paul talks about the conflict of his own soul when he says, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And why does he keep on doing what he doesn't want if, if there isn't some part of him that wants it? In other words, he says, I want two things at the same time and they are in opposition to each other. He says, I find it to be a law, this, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members and so on. Now, I'm trying to show you this simple fact that we are conflicted creatures, that we have opposing thoughts within us, that we have faith and we also have unbelief, that we have a desire to do good and we also have the temptation to do wrong. And these things are 
are often conflicted within us and we can't really unravel our own desires or minds or hearts very easily. We don't understand ourselves. But this is why I think the psalmist demonstrates to us this element, this crucial element of knowing how to take ourselves in hand and talk to ourselves. It's not, it's not that he's merely repeating empty mantras, you know, like the self-help movement commends. He's not just saying empty words. What he's rather doing is he's learning to take himself in hand. He's learning to take his emotions in hand. And you ask, well, how do you do that? I think there are many ways it can be done. One of them is through being conscious of the things that you consume. The things that you read, the things that you watch, the things that you're allowing to occupy your mind. You are responsible for those things. So they are a means of controlling your own thoughts, a means of talking to yourself, choosing well how you spend your time and what you dwell upon. I think, by the way, in our current moment with regard to this, that may well be spending much, much less time watching and reading the news and much more time dwelling in scripture and reading the Psalms or reading uh, encouraging Christian books that feed your soul. That's part of it. Another part of it is how we, uh, our, our acts of devotion in the sense that I think Christians t- who, who seem to me to be able to walk through dark times are Christians who have scripture in their bones and who can bring scripture to bear on their present situation. The scriptures that they have, they can call to mind and which they can tell themselves it may be through the process of journaling that you can use written word to, to process truth and to speak truth to yourself in a way that's slightly more external to yourself. However it is, I think the fundamental way is through thanksgiving. Being able to thank God for the good things is a way of telling yourself, God has been good to me. God is good. God is good in this present moment. So we see this also. We see the discipline of prayer, and then we see this discipline of him talking to himself. Why you cast down on my soul? Why you in turmoil? Hoping God, he says. This brings me to the final element, which is the discipline of remembrance. He says in the second half of verse 5, My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan, of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. I'm experiencing spiritual depression, he says. Therefore, what I must do is remember. Now, I, I think this is one of the most important but also most neglected spiritual disciplines when we talk about and converse about what, what, what are spiritual disciplines. And I want to try and show you why that's the case. Think of this in your day-to-day life. Memory is absolutely crucial to you being able to function at any given moment in life, especially in circumstances on the face of it might look frightening, but memory gives context. Have you ever had the experience of waking up in a bed when you've been traveling and not having any clue where you are or what room you're in or where the door is or how to get out and the sudden heart racing moment of terror you feel until memory floods back to you and it sets you in context. Oh, I remember how I got here. I remember what happened. I've been concussed three times as a child where I took knocks to the head and had short-term memory loss. And it, it probably explains a good deal about me to this day. But one of the things I remember about it is the sense of panic in that moment. What happened? Where am I? And you ask the question many, many, many times and people around you find it amusing eventually because they keep telling you the same story of what's just happened. But being cut off from your memories makes your present situation terrifying. You can think about how this would be true in so many circumstances of life. You find yourself in a dentist's chair. 
with a drill in your tooth. Now, that's terrifying in the best of circumstances, but how much more if you have no clue of how you ended up there or, or whether there's a way out? So many situations in life, waking up next to your spouse, if you had no memory of who they are or how you got there, that's utterly terrifying. Life is only, it's only possible to face the situations of life because of memory, because of context, because of what, the way it kind of brackets your present situation. And I think in this sense that this is, this is absolutely true of the spiritual life. I want to use an analogy here to help you grasp what I'm speaking about. I think in many ways, the Christian life is like walking across a rope bridge. And you're in the middle of that bridge. And if you look down, you can see through the slats a massive drop. You can see holes in the sides. And if you take your situation in isolation, it is absolutely terrifying. But there are two anchor points which hold you and which make you feel confident. One is in front of you, that the bridge is attached in front of you. And that's this aspect of hope, which the psalmist speaks about in verse 5, where he says, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And we know that the Christian has future-looking hope. In fact, that's one of the most profoundly important aspects of the Christian life. We have certainty about the future. But the other dynamic of, is that the, there's another anchor point, that the rope bridge is attached both in front and behind. And behind you is past experiences of the faithfulness of God. It's remembrance, which is why he says, my soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you. In other words, I look back and I know that, that there, is, there is an anchor point behind me. And if you don't have one of these anchor points, particularly mem- remembrance, it's like you're on the rope bridge, but it's swinging wildly unattached from, from reality. Therefore, what I'm trying to help you understand is that a Christian who loses hope, very, it, very, it, it may very well be true that they've forgotten too much. And this is spoken of actually in many places in Scripture, but particularly in the Psalms, which emphasizes just what a central aspect this is to healthy spiritual living. That is spoken of negatively, particularly in Psalm 106, as the psalmist is reflecting back upon the the failings of the Israelites who wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. And when he, 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 he searches around for an explanation of why they walked away from God, why they gave themselves over to idolatry and worshipped the golden calf, what he keeps saying in this psalm is, it was a failure of memory. He says in Psalm 106, they soon forgot God's works. He says they made a calf, which is the golden calf idol they constructed, in Horeb, and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God, the living God, Yahweh, for the image of an ox that eats grass. It's laughable on the face of it. And he asks the question, why? And he says, they forgot God, their saviour, who had done great things in Egypt. So there they were, wandering around, feeling very sorry for themselves, because in their present situation, they didn't have a permanent home. They were eating the same food every day. They felt no way out of their situation. They were on the rope bridge, in other words. And their greatest failing was that they forgot. And in forgetting, in losing sight of the reality of who God is, everything went wrong. They stopped being grateful to God. They stopped trusting God, and it led ultimately to their rebellion. And the same pattern always plays out in the life of a Christian who forgets. They first stop saying thank you. Then they can no longer trust God. If you forget his goodness, you you don't trust him. And it always inevitably leads to this step of rebellion. 
that we then wander away from God because we just think we get surly and petulant like a spoiled rich kid who's not conscious of all the sacrifices and the goodness that the parents have made to get to where he is. We become like that. We, uh, we forget the past faithfulness of God. And so we feel, we still, we feel self-righteous and indignant and angry and ultimately full of self-pity. And we just wander off and do our own thing. We rebel against God. Now this Psalm, Psalm 42 is calling the believer who's experiencing a kind of spiritual depression back to remembrance. What is it that we're called to remember when we're going through dark moments? The answer is we're meant to remember the daytime. In Psalm 30, it says, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Night is only bearable because you remember that every day without fail, morning arrives. The sun will come up. This is not going to be a permanent situation. Things will get better. And the only reason you know that about the future is because it has been your past experience time and time again. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy will come with the morning as the sun comes up. And friends, this is really one of the most fundamental aspects of the Christian life. The Christian life isn't really about the present, not first and foremost. The Christian life is really about the past. It's about what God has done, not so much about what you are doing. And so there are anchors for the Christian soul. We think about, firstly, God's faithfulness through all of history, which is what we celebrate when we sing songs together. Most of our songs are telling the story of a faithful God who's faithful to his people. And this is what the scripture is given to us for. We have thousands of pages of the writings of people who are documenting the faithfulness and the unchangeable nature of the God that we serve. We remember his faithfulness. We also remember the work that he's done in, in your life. You, your personal experiences of the goodness of God. Many Christians forget these things, which is why they feel detached, why they feel like they're on the rope bridge and it's swinging wildly. But look back. Look back and think about the goodness of God. Look back and think about the moment when you came to believe in Jesus and how he took your guilt away, how he took your shame away, how he began to bind you up and to heal you. It may be the case that you feel wounded right now. You feel perhaps like the psalmist describes it here where he says, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. He's saying, God, I feel utterly crushed by the constant barrage of waves smashing me down whenever I try to stand up, it's like you just are in opposition to me. The only reason he can be absolutely certain of the goodness of God is because of remembrance. Like it says in an earlier psalm, in Psalm 34, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. In other words, he says, I remember, I remember you being very good to me when I needed you. I remember calling out to you and you were with me in the darkest time. We remember God's faithfulness through history. We remember it in our own stories. But here's the most important thing. And this is why I say the Christian life is primarily about the past and not so much about the present. We remember the love of God poured out to us in the cross of Jesus Christ. This is, I cannot overstate how crucial and fundamental this is to the Christian mind. 
This is why the Christian life is not so much about now. It's about what Jesus accomplished 2,000 years ago when he died on the cross for us. And the reason why that is our anchor is because that is the ultimate moment in history when all of our sin was dealt with by Christ and when God's love was so manifestly shown to us in the giving of his son when he, when he died on the cross. A Christian who is disappointed with God in the present or feels angry with God or feels that God isn't good is a Christian who's been cut off from that one event which changes all of history. A Christian who's forgotten the goodness of God in the giving of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and of that Savior who died for us, who bled for us upon the cross. What does the gospel tell us, friends? It tells us that even if you're in darkness now, you're not facing the deepest darkness. The deepest darkness that you could, could face is what Christ faced when he died on the cross and descended into hell, as the creed says. That was the deepest darkness, and you will never face it. You may feel that the clouds are thick above you now, but it's nothing like what Christ faced. And he faced it so that you wouldn't have to. The gospel tells us that we're not abandoned or alone or forgotten. You may feel that God is far away from you at this particular moment. But it is as nothing compared with the abandonment that the Lord Jesus Christ faced when he was your substitute on the cross. And he cried out the words, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced the extreme abandonment of being, of feeling the wrath of God against sin in his own body on the tree so that you and I would never be abandoned by God, so that we would be held in his grip and never would he let go of us. The cross tells us that we're loved, friends. It's what I'm trying to tell you. It means that you, ha- you can call to mind an event in history which once and for all demonstrates and proves beyond any shadow of a doubt that God is good and that he loves you. This is why Paul ends Romans 8 with this great rallying call. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He's writing in the context of suffering. He's saying it may feel like the whole world is against us, but really no one's against us because God is for us. He says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? There are the anchors. He says, look back behind you and you see that God gave his son, which means that when we look forward, our hope is real. That we can look forward to the morning. We can look forward to being with God in eternity. We know that he loves us. I want to ask you as I close, are you cast down? Are you feeling a darkness that you can't shake right now? And perhaps it's true of you now. Perhaps it'll be true at some point in the future. When I've taken my son swimming, one of the experiences is that sometimes he can have a moment of panic in the water even though we're in shallow water. And all you need to do is say, put your feet down, feel the floor, feel the ground beneath you. And when, when the feet settle upon the pool floor, calm and peace returns. And really what this psalm is doing for us is it's saying, put your feet on the ground. You feel like you're panicking. You feel anxious. You feel like you're flailing. You feel like everything is uncertain, like you have nothing to grab hold of. Put your feet down. Find your joy, your satisfaction like the deer panting for water through coming to God in prayer. Tell yourself the truth about the goodness of God and ultimately remember 
the gospel. Remember the cross. And I know that some of you are not Christian. You're listening to this. You're watching this. You're engaging with what we're doing on these Sundays. And you have never known the love of God in your life. Listen, the first time you put your feet on the floor and feel that stability, it will absolutely transform your life. Everything about life feels different when you know God is there and that he loves you and that he's given his son to be your savior. I want to encourage you, you can trust in Jesus today by simply calling out to him and saying, God, save me. God, forgive me of my sins and let me come to know you. You can pray a prayer as simple as that and you'll find for the first time your feet are on the ground. But I also know that many of you are Christian. You're flailing as well. And really, it's beneath us in one sense because we should know better. But how easily we forget, don't we? Friends, put your feet down on the ground. Come back to the Lord. Let's pray. Pete and Nats are going to lead us in worship as we wrap this up and as we respond to God with our praise and with confession of worship of his goodness. Let's pray. Father, I want to give you praise and thank you that, Lord, our past experience has always been that joy has come in the morning. And Lord, we know that um, we can face stuff that feels impossible. It feels like all your waves and your breakers have washed over us, deep calls to deep. We feel utterly like we're drowning. But Lord, we thank you that you can set our feet upon you again. And we come to you now. We're saying, Lord, would you give us a taste of that delight the psalmist was speaking of where the deer experiences its thirst slaked satisfied in coming to you help us take ourselves in hand help us to remember your goodness so that Lord will not be drifting without anchor but will be certain of the things we believe and know are true we pray this in Jesus mighty name Amen